Welcome to PD Heart. This is Pediatric Cardiology Today. My name is Dr. Robert Pass, and I'm the host of this program. I am professor of pediatrics at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in New York City. Thank you so much for joining me for the 17th episode of the podcast. This past week, I was in Boston at the Heart Rhythm Society meeting and had a wonderful time reconnecting with so many of my wonderful colleagues in the field of electrophysiology. And as most of us know, after one's been through such an experience, they are enthused and energetic about their field. And for this reason, it seemed as if there was no possibility that I could review any anything but electrophysiology this week. And so this week will be Electrophysiology Week. And we'll be reviewing two papers this week. The first paper is entitled Perioperative Electrophysiology Study in Patients with Tetralogy of Fallot Undergoing Pulmonary Valve Replacement Will Identify Those at High Risk of Subsequent Ventricular Tachycardia. The first author is Amnit Sandhu, and the senior author is Doi Nguyen, and this work comes to us as a collaborative project between the pediatric and the adult cardiology programs at the University of Colorado in Aurora, Colorado. This paper is accompanied by a wonderful editorial by Dr. Ed Walsh, and Dr. Walsh has graciously agreed to speak with us briefly about this work. The second paper we'll be reviewing is entitled Permanent His Bundle Pacing, Long-Term Lead Performance and Clinical Outcomes. The first author of this work is Pugazendi Vijayaraman, and the senior author is Kenneth Ellenbogen, and this work comes to us from the Geisinger Heart Institute in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. Both works appear in this month's edition of Heart Rhythm Journal. And so without further ado, let's move straight on to the articles. Again, the title of this work is Perioperative Electrophysiology Study in Patients with Tetralogy of Fallot Undergoing Pulmonary Valve Replacement Will Identify Those at High Risk of Subsequent Ventricular Tachycardia. The first author is Amnit Sandhu and the senior author Doi T. Nguyen. And this comes to us from the Division of Cardiology at the University of Colorado, as well as the Division of Cardiology at Children's Hospital of Colorado, both in Aurora, Colorado. The work starts by reviewing the facts that arrhythmia and sudden death are important late sequelae of Tetralogy of Fallot. In point of fact, as many as 43% of Tetralogy patients at long-term follow-up have either had a sustained arrhythmia, an implanted cardiac device, or cardiac ablation. Finally, ventricular arrhythmias remain the leading cause of death in the Tetralogy of Fallot patient population, and so prevention of this dreaded complication is obviously critical. Increasingly, Pulmonary valve replacement is performed, and the most common indication is an elevated right ventricular volume. The authors of this work routinely have performed risk stratification around the time of surgical PVR, given that we know that ventricular stimulation studies have been shown to have diagnostic and prognostic value. If the study is positive, the group in Colorado have performed an empiric cryoablation at the time of PVR with linear cryoablation lesions from the anterior ventriculotomy scar to the pulmonary valve annulus from the VSD patch to the pulmonary valve annulus, and finally, placement of a circumferential lesion below the pulmonary valve annulus in the right ventricular outflow tract. Based upon this protocol, therefore, the authors sought to prospectively evaluate all patients with Tetralogy of Fallot who underwent a pulmonary valve replacement, and essentially sought to define, first, the prevalence of inducible sustained ventricular arrhythmia in patients who are about to undergo pulmonary valve replacement, two, the prevalence of inducible ventricular arrhythmias in pulmonary valve replacement patients who had had intraoperative empiric cryoablations, and finally three, 
the long-term outcomes of patients who underwent post-op EP study and were subsequently given ICD therapy, presumably because they were still inducible. The study was a prospective study from 2006 to 2017 at the two previously mentioned centers. Patients were excluded if they were less than 18 years of age or if they did not undergo a perioperative electrophysiologic study. All patients underwent an EP study prior to pulmonary valve replacement with a standard programmed electrical stimulation protocol in two sites and at two cycle lengths. Inducibility was defined as any ventricular arrhythmia lasting more than 30 seconds or longer, or any that was hemodynamically unstable that required either pace termination or defibrillation. If the testing was negative, testing was repeated on isoprel. And if the study was positive, patients had the empiric lesion set at the time of pulmonary valve replacement and then underwent a post-operative study. And on to the results. 70 patients with Tetralogy of Fallot met inclusion criteria. The median age was 33 years, and 50% of the patients were women. Approximately one-half of the patients were inducible for ventricular arrhythmia prior to pulmonary valve replacement. A positive pre-PVR replacement EP study was associated with being male, having a greater weight, and a greater BMI. Though not statistically significant, there was a trend towards increased inducibility amongst patients with larger RV volumes. As already noted, 34 patients, or almost 50% of the original 70, had a positive pre-surgical electrophysiologic study. Of these 34 patients with a positive study, 31 underwent cryoablation. It should be noted that the majority of these patients had a monomorphic ventricular tachycardia prior to ablation, and a smaller percentage, roughly a third, had a polymorphic form of ventricular tachycardia. When studied in the postoperative period, 14 of the 31 patients who had undergone an intraoperative cryoablation were still inducible, with the majority having monomorphic VT and a small minority polymorphic VT. All 14 of these patients had ICD implantation, and in a follow-up of about six years, there were appropriate ICD shocks for ventricular tachycardia in three of these patients, and an ICD shock for an SVT in one patient. Interestingly, in comparison amongst those patients who had a negative pre-PVREP study, two patients in follow-up had VT requiring RF ablation and or subsequent ICD implantation. Importantly, there were no arrhythmic deaths amongst that patient group. Thus, the authors state that in this multidisciplinary prospective study, they found that nearly one-half of patients with Tetralogy of Fallot who were undergoing a pre-PVREP study had inducible sustained ventricular arrhythmias, and amongst those who subsequently underwent a cryoablation in conjunction with a PVR, nearly one-half continued to manifest sustained ventricular arrhythmias on post-surgical EP study and therefore underwent ICD implantation. Finally, on follow-up of their ICD implantation, roughly 20% of these patients had appropriate ICD shocks, with most of them for ventricular arrhythmias. The authors state that although the cryoablation lesions were made in an appropriate and standard fashion using a surgical cryo tool, there was no way to tell at the time of the ablation if there was bidirectional block along the lines that were drawn. Moreover, at the time of this study, the authors did not actually assess for bidirectional block across the cryo lesions at the time of post-PVR EP study. 
this might potentially have identified patients who could have been helped by additional radiofrequency lesions at the time of that catheterization. And the authors state that it has become their policy to assess for this type of block, and if it is not present, to, quote, touch up the area with radiofrequency energy. Thus, the authors conclude that patients with tetralogy of flow who are undergoing pulmonary valve replacement are at significant risk for ventricular arrhythmias, and that a perioperative EP study guided risk stratification protocol could identify patients with high-risk tetralogy of flow who would require further intervention. Importantly, however, Despite empirical VT cryoablation at the time of pulmonary valve replacement, a high percentage of patients remained inducible for ventricular tachycardia, and in this high-risk cohort, post-PVREP study evaluation continued to identify patients with persistent VT requiring further therapy such as ablation or ICD placement. Dr. Edward Walsh, who is the director of the Arrhythmia Service at Boston Children's Hospital, wrote a brief editorial in response to this article. Dr. Walsh starts his editorial by reviewing the history of sudden death and what we know about it in Tetralogy of Fallot, showing that in 1972 was the first time that, to his knowledge, this issue of sudden death was first reported as a clinical concern. He then reviews the literature on identification of how to ablate patients with ventricular tachycardia and tetralogy of Fallot, and goes through important papers that demonstrated the common areas where ablation would be most likely to be effective. In response to this paper, Dr. Walsh states that the data in this work are both unique and important, as this is the first organized appraisal of this approach in a sizable cohort. But he uses the term a cautionary tale in describing these results because of the fact that 45% of the patients remained inducible after cryoablation. And he offers a couple of suggestions as to why that might be, with the most important being the inability of the surgeon to know whether or not there is adequate conduction block from these empiric lesions. He reviews the difficulty of knowing if one has bidirectional block because the patient is on bypass in the operating room. And he states that the inability to prove conduction block leaves open the possibility of an incomplete ablation or perhaps even a proarrhythmic ablation due to an unfavorable slowing of conduction velocity through still viable lesion areas. He also suggests that even if all the lesions are done properly, not all ventricular tachycardia in people with tetralogy is associated with the right ventricle, and thus, even if the lesions are done perfectly, one could still potentially be at risk. He states that although one could be potentially negative about these results, it is somewhat encouraging to see that 55% of patients following this approach were no longer inducible. He posits that if more aggressive testing of the ablation lines were done, the success rate might even be better. But he warns that despite all of the efforts, it is still likely that there will be a small but real percentage of patients who will not be completely free of ventricular arrhythmias and the serious risk that these pose. He states, quote, Ablation therapy for ventricular tachycardia in patients with citrology of Fallot, whether performed in the operating room or electrophysiological laboratory, is rarely used as an isolated therapy in the present era. It can play an important role in reducing the shock burden for patients who already have an ICD in place, but reliance on ablation to prevent sudden death in high-risk patients with tetralogy without a backup ICD seems ill-advised. As in most things electrophysiologic, I really have nothing to add 
beyond what Dr. Walsh has said. Perhaps all I can say is to reemphasize Dr. Walsh's main point, which is that we cannot hang our hat on any ablation in the setting of Tetralogy of Fallot, even in the setting of an outstanding ablator with an excellent line of conduction block, it's quite clear that this disease can still fool us, and patients with tetralogy of Fallot and ventricular arrhythmias are at continued risk for sudden death, and until we know for certain that the, our efforts in the cath lab have been perfectly successful at eradicating all forms of ventricular arrhythmias in the setting of an easily inducible tetralogy patient, it seems quite clear that at least in 2018, implantation of an ICD is a very important adjunct to protect these patients. I also wonder if this paper makes it more obvious that we should be doing V-STEM studies in virtually all patients who are undergoing pulmonary valve replacement over a certain age. If 50% of the patients have a positive study in this group, one has to wonder if it is important to be routinely studying these patients at the time of operations of this nature. Given the relatively low risk associated with an EP study, I think the study should give us all pause and to consider whether it might make sense to be doing EP studies in all patients prior to pulmonary valve replacement. At this time, I think it's important to bring on Dr. Walsh to discuss this paper and the issue of sudden death and tetralogy. Ed Walsh really needs no introduction. He is the chief of the Division of Electrophysiology at Harvard Medical School, Boston Children's Hospital, and is professor of pediatrics. Dr. Walsh went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, did all of his general pediatric training at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and then went and did his cardiology fellowship at Boston Children's Hospital, followed by cardiac electrophysiology training at Massachusetts General Hospital. He is considered the foremost authority on congenital heart disease arrhythmias in the world today. Welcome, Dr. Walsh. So we're here with Ed Walsh. And Ed, I appreciate very much your agreeing to be on the uh, podcast. In your uh, editorial, you mention that you would view ablation with caution in tetralogy uh, when trying to protect these patients from sudden cardiac death because of inadequacies of ablation and risks from multiple types of ventricular uh, arrhythmias. Are there circumstances where you might consider not placing an ICD in a tetralogy patient in whom you've ablated for ventricular tachycardia who has clinical VT? Yeah, so before I answer that specific question, I think it's important to remember that we really encounter two different types of VT in tetralogy patients. And it took me a long time to appreciate how um, unpredictable they both are. There's the monomorphic kind, macro reentry type, that um, we know the most about, that usually involves certain critical isthmuses that uh, Zeppenfeld and her colleagues have right. outlined pretty well. Mm -hmm. But then there's these other tetralogy patients with, for lack of a better description, a burnout ventricle, a big dilated ventricle. Things have gone a little too far. Pulmonary valve replacement does not result in enough reverse remodeling in those patients mm. to ever say the coast is clear. Um, and those patients get polymorphic VT. It probably has nothing to do with, with the, uh, the, the critical isthmuses uh, that we talk about so frequently. Mm -hmm. Plus, you have occasional patients who have gone even further uh, in a deteriorating direction where the LV starts to get involved. Mm. If you don't have a pristine left ventricle, I think you have to worry about both types of VT. I see. 
the the logic for attacking critical isthmuses during surgery is perfectly logical but you have to for for protection of that patient you have to think about whether they're even if you got rid of the monomorphic vt would they still be at risk for the polymorphic vt and you may still have to consider a defibrillator even if you're able to successfully interrupt a monomorphic circuit. So does that mean then that if you see someone who has clinical monomorphic VT, has normal LV function, you would be more inclined to feel comfortable about ablation as a primary and lone therapy? Or? Absolutely. I yeah. see. And so then patients with either bad RV or bad LV function, very dilated heart, even if you felt you ablated the clinical arrhythmia, you'd be worried that there's other stuff lying in there that could potentially be just as dangerous. Yes, and even with catheter therapy where you can measure whether you closed off the isthmus yeah. uh, of interest, even in the best of hands, the recurrence rate for that VT is about 18%. I see. There's not a whole lot of published data to come up with that 18%, but I did a, a poor man's meta-analysis of what's been published. Yeah. Uh, and that 18% is very similar to the recurrence rate after acutely successful VT ablation in ischemic heart disease. Okay. So I think it's a real number. I see. Okay. So uh, betting someone's life on whether your acutely successful ablation is going to be a permanent success, that's probably not a good bet. So I'm getting the sense that when in doubt, you would lean more towards a defibrillator in this particular patient population. Yes, I would. Now, situations where we wouldn't consider that, uh, as you say, someone with good LV function, maybe with a decent, um, you know, diseased but decent right ventricle. Mm Mm-hmm. A, a circuit of monomorphic VT that's been documented that's hemodynamically tolerated fairly well. Yeah. yeah. Only one morphology, not multiple different monomorphic morphologies. And you thought you got it in ablation. And a, and a clean ablation. Yeah. Uh, I would I would consider foregoing an ICD in a patient like that. I see. I would do a follow-up V-STEM study. Uh, mm-hmm. and prove that the conduction block of interest is still there, and you might do that even before you send a patient home. When you say a follow-up EP study, you mean at the same time as the ablation or bring them back to the lab on a separate visit? Bring them back to the lab after, I don't know, 48 hours. I see. And, and it, it, it's naive to think that it's easy to prove conduction block in tetralogy outflow tracts mm-hmm. and around that conal septal area, but it can be done. I see. Um, the other thing that I would say in the paper that we're discussing here, not all of their induced VTs were monomorphic. Right. Uh, some of them were polymorphic. Yeah. And I would have been less inclined to be optimistic about the results of surgical cryo. I see. I see. Um, well, that actually brings up the next point. Are you now recommending EP studies routinely in people who are having surgical pulmonary valve rep- replacements as was done in this study? I would like to. We probably only capture about a third of them. Okay. A lot of the patients that are sent to our centers come from a distance and it's a little hard to make sure uh, it's done in advance. Mm -hmm. Um, There's some pretty quick measurements you can do though, looking at um, these critical isthmus areas that Zeppenfeld's identified for us. She has a follow-up paper from her group that's actually one of the most beautiful tetralogy electrophysiology studies I've ever seen. 
mm. and she measured conduction velocity through the critical isthmus. Mm. And one of the, the conduction, the, the likelihood that a critical isthmus will support VT, it has to be a long, narrow, and slowly conducting isthmus. Mm. And you can measure the conduction velocity. And she found a threshold value. And if your conduction velocity was beneath that, the likelihood that you were going to have clinical or inducible VT was extremely high. I see. That's very interesting. So, so I guess then it's not at all surprising that when the surgeons in this study did empiric lesions and were not able during the operation to actually assess conduction block or things like that, that you would have a very high percentage of people who would still be inducible afterwards. Yes, I, I think that's fair to say. I mean, if, if you take what, what uh, Zeppenfeld calls isthmus number three, which is the conal septum, mm-hmm. that's thick tissue in, in yeah. tetralogy. And you can freeze it. It doesn't mean you've gotten uh, transmural tissue damage. And maybe you don't want transmural tissue damage because that conal septum's holding up the aortic valve leaflets. Mm. So it's not like you can go in there and slash and burn and um, not accept some risks. Has anyone ever reported problems related to that? I'm not aware of that, but I always think about it when you look at the anatomy. Well, uh, one question I had for you, Ed, is that in patients who you do think need an ICD with tetralogy, uh, are you recommending mostly SICDs or transvenous systems at this stage? So assuming, let's say, for the sake of discussion, the tricuspid valve is functional, does not have significant tricuspid regurgitation. Uh, we've been going mostly with transvenous systems. Mm-hmm. Part of the reason is we have tried to evaluate the sensing function based on the QRS and We've been disappointed in patients who have right bundle branch block, particularly if it's wide right bundle, yeah. that they, they don't screen in for sub-Q use very often. I see. Okay. So they're not even making it through the screening. So not it's not it even an option, really. Yeah. So, I see. Uh, you know, other centers are a little more proactive with sub-Q ICDs, and, and that's great. I mean, you, you, we need the experience. Yeah. But, um, you know, we were... We were sort of warned by the experience from uh, Jan Till in London mm-hmm. that when there's bundle branch block, you know, you, you don't just look for one vector arrangement to screen in. You need multiple, and, oh, and we okay. don't find them. I see. Very I see. often when somebody's got surgical bundle so branch. So you're block. not, you're not, uh, you don't feel confident that the device is protective in those circumstances when when you have a big bundle in the. Yeah, I mean the worst screen. ICD is the one that goes off inappropriately or doesn't go off when it's supposed to. And yeah, you, yeah. You invite that potential. Well, but, uh, you know, more experienced centers. I've heard of people putting the sub Q ICDs in differently where. Instead of tunneling up the left side of the sternum, you tunnel up the right side. I see. You, you, you might get better sensing that way. So I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying our institution is a little biased against it. Okay. Well, I, you're a busy guy, Ed. We're here at Heart Rhythm um, meetings, so I'm going to ask one final question and let you go. It's a long day. We're here past 6 o'clock for the listeners. In your view, Ed, what's the next step in researching this issue of prevention of sudden death? I mean, you've done a lot of work on this in the past. Um, is there is there some area in particular that you think needs further uh, research in this regard? Well, you know, we've spent decades trying to find non-invasive risk factors. Yeah. And the problem is that none of them have perfect predictive accuracy, and a lot of them are covariables. And in multivariate analysis, it's kind of hard to find one that really is powerful. Yeah. The follow-up paper that Zeppenfeld published on the conduction velocity 
Yes. I think if you read that critically, you will see that a lot of those patients would not have been considered high risk based on non-invasive risk factors like, mm. you know, MRI data, QRS with the, the, the easy things the standard that we throw ones, around yeah. a lot, or some people throw around a lot. Uh, I've never been a big believer in the non-invasive stuff because so many people have that risk yeah, factor. Yeah, sure, you sure. Know, if you go to an adult congenital clinic and there's five tetralogy patients there, three of the five are high risk, and you're not going to slap an ICD in all of them. But that follow-up paper from Zeppenfeld's group talked about just measuring the conduction velocity through the critical isthmus, hmm. which would is a very simple maneuver to do. Hmm. And um, I, we're adopting that now as anytime one of those patients goes to the cath lab prior to getting a melody valve or anything like that, um, we're taking a look-see. Really? Well, I can see based on your thoughts on the non-invasive markers why you're leaning more towards doing invasive studies because that seems a little bit more reliable predictively in terms of whether someone's going to have arrhythmias. Yeah, I mean, uh, if, 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 somebody, if, if somebody has a bad biventricular function, I think everyone would agree that um, the status of the left ventricle is really critical. Yeah. And um, that shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Sure, sure. That's probably not monomorphic VT. That's probably polymorphic right. VT, VF. Yeah. Um, I don't think we even know why people with tetralogy get bad LV function, right? I mean, do we have a good understanding of that at this time? Um, it does seem to happen well, a lot. Well, the buzzword is ventriculo-ventricular interaction, uh, whatever that is. Yeah. But it could also have been bad cardioplegia, you know, 30 yeah. years prior. Sure. Um, I don't think we know, as you say. Okay. Well, Ed, I can't thank you enough for being on this little podcast. Uh, this is actually probably this week's episode. We'll, we'll probably hit our 10,000th download in the world. And uh, I just want to thank you for being on it. And as I always say to you and try to make you embarrassed, thank you so much for everything you've done for me throughout my entire career. Oh, it's been fun. It's been fun. Thank you very much. Well, if you're like me, you're very excited to have heard that wonderful interview with Dr. Walsh. One can't help but learn certain pearls of arrhythmia management with just a few minutes with this master of arrhythmias. If I were to briefly summarize some of the more important points that Dr. Walsh made during our brief interview today, he made a very strong point about there being two types of ventricular tachycardia in patients with citrology of Fallot the monomorphic macro-reentrant type of tachycardia, which is dependent upon critical isthmuses, and the polymorphic variety, which is unrelated to critical isthmuses and is perhaps somewhat less predictable. Generally speaking, it seems as if Dr. Walsh was more worried about having both types of VT in a patient who also has tetralogy and poor LV function. Because of the possibility of having either of these two forms of ventricular tachycardia, he feels it's logical that the type of ablations described in this paper from Colorado would not always be effective because they would not probably have any impact on the polymorphic form of ventricular tachycardia. When asked the question as to which patient with tetralogy would he consider not placing an ICD, he seemed to feel that patients who had good biventricular function and monomorphic, hemodynamically tolerable ventricular tachycardia of a single morphology who underwent what seems like a clean and clear ablation followed by a negative V-STEM study would probably be a reasonable candidate to not have an ICD. However, that's an awful lot of conditions upon which to not place an ICD. And if I could quote him, 
Betting someone's life on ablation being a permanent success is probably not a good bet. In regards to the question of whether he would recommend doing an EP study at the time of pulmonary valve replacement, he actually said he would like to, but is not always able to because of various issues related to specific patient situations. In response to the question of whether he would favor a SICD or a transvenous ICD in the setting of tetralogy, He's clear in telling us that a large number of tetralogy patients don't pass the screening tests that are required to have an SICD, and so even if they would like to place them because of concerns that they would not sense appropriately, they have been more commonly placing transvenous systems in this setting. Finally, I think it's noteworthy that Dr. Walsh feels that a lot of the non-invasive measures or predictors of sudden cardiac death and tetralogy are things that he doesn't entirely trust, and he still believes that the invasive EP study is likely to be a more reliable means of predicting sudden cardiac death or serious ventricular arrhythmias in this setting. I think you will agree with me that we are very lucky to have been joined today by Dr. Walsh to hear his great insights into this area, which has been a particular area of interest for him for over 35 years. It is no surprise why he was chosen to write the editorial on this wonderful paper from Colorado. The next and last paper we'll review today is entitled Permanent His Bundle Pacing, Long-Term Lead Performance and Clinical Outcomes. This work comes to us from Geisinger Heart Institute in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. The first author is Pugazendi Vijayaraman, and the senior author is Kenneth Ellenbogen. And the work appears in this month's issue of the journal Heart Rhythm. This work is actually an adult study, but because of the potential implications for pediatric electrophysiology and pediatric cardiology, I thought it would be interesting and important to review it this week on the podcast. This work starts by reviewing the fact that RV pacing is known to cause electrical and mechanical dyssynchrony, and long-term RV pacing in adults has been associated with higher rates of atrial fibrillation, heart failure, and even mortality. And there have been adult studies showing that in adults, more than 40% pacing is a risk factor for heart failure hospitalization. I might add that RV apical pacing has also been shown for many years in pediatric cardiology to be associated with the development long-term of RV and LV dysfunction in some patients who are chronically paced. And this has been shown by many authors, including Jeff Moak from DC Children's Hospital. In the year 2000, investigators first demonstrated that his bundle pacing was actually achievable, and it was hoped that by pacing the his bundle, the ventricles would depolarize more normally with improved synchrony, thus avoiding the dyssynchrony of RV apical pacing that's believed to be the etiology of long-term dysfunction. The group of this study and others have previously shown that the use of his bundle pacing has been associated with improved exercise capacity, preservation of LV ejection fraction, and improved heart failure outcomes, similar to more standard biventricular pacing. This work was intended to analyze the five-year data with chronic His bundle pacing. It's important to recognize that His bundle pacing, although first introduced many years ago, has not really caught on until recently because of the technical demands of placing a permanent pacemaking catheter at the site of the bundle of His. However, lead technology and techniques have improved, making this a more viable option for the setting of pacemaker implantation. Over a 10-month period from January 2011 to October 2011, All patients who underwent pacemaker insertion were included for analysis. A Medtronic Select Secure Pacing Lead was placed using a particular sheath, the Medtronic C315 sheath. 
If the pacing catheter was placed in such a manner that there was capture of the Hiss only without simultaneous V-capture, it was called selective Hiss bundle pacing. And if there was fusion with V-capture and Hiss, then it was called non-selective Hiss bundle pacing. Patients who had RV pacing had an RV apical or septal lead placed. Echoes were obtained at baseline and then follow-up echoes at least one year after implant were obtained. And on to the results. In the study period, 192 patients underwent pacemaker implantation, of which 98 had RV apical or septal pacing and 94 his bundle. The mean age was in the mid-70s, and both groups were similar in terms of LV ejection fraction, presence of hypertension, presence of coronary artery disease, and male-female ratio. Not surprisingly, capture thresholds in the HIS were higher than the RV, 1.35 volts versus 0.6 volts, and this difference between HIS and RV pacing were sustained at all follow-up up to five years. There was an increase in threshold in both groups over time, and sensed R waves were lower in the HIS bundle-paced group at follow-up. In regard to lead complications, lead revision for loss of capture or increasing thresholds was more common in HIS bundle pacing. Importantly, the cure restoration was significantly more narrow in the HIS bundle paced group at 124 milliseconds versus the RV paced group of 168 milliseconds, and this remained the case at short and five-year follow-up. In regards to echo function measures in the RV paced group, LV ejection fraction decreased from 57% to 52%, whereas LV ejection fraction remained the same, about 55% at baseline and 57% at last follow-up, amongst his bundle-paced patients. In the RV-paced group, a fall in LV ejection fraction more than 10% was seen in 18 patients, going from an average of 59% to 36%. In regard to heart failure in the patients who underwent his bundle p- pacing successfully, there was a significant increased risk of endpoint of death or heart failure in the RV paced group. In their discussion, the authors comment that this paper represents the first long term outcomes paper study of permanent his bundle pacing. They state that despite the good findings in regards to heart failure and LV ejection fraction, the need for revision of the system was higher in the his bundle paste group versus the RV paste group. The authors think about the possible causes for a rising threshold in these patients and wonder if the larger loop of the lead across the tricuspid valve results in more stress on the lead, causing earlier failure. In regard to limitations of the study, the investigators list the retrospective nature of this study with the inherent biases from this. The work also does not really speak of the 20% of patients in whom attempted his pacing was tried and failed. Thus, they conclude that at five-year follow-up, his bundle thresholds remained stable for most, though lead revisions were needed more frequently compared to RV pacing. However, his bundle pacing was associated with a significant reduction in pacemaker-induced cardiomyopathy and death or heart failure worsening compared to RV pacing. This paper is an adult paper and is not really germane to pediatrics as there are no patients in this study who are children. However, it is important to note that a lot of patients who have chronic RV pacing can develop over time a cardiomyopathy. Typically, this is not a serious problem or a common one, but it is certainly one that has been described, and the longer one is apically paced, the greater the chances of this occurring. Oftentimes when this occurs, 
The most common solution is to try biventricular pacing in order to improve cardiac synchrony. However, this includes putting an extra lead into the heart with all of the associated potential complications of this, particularly in a small patient who will need multiple pacing systems. The reason that I'm bringing this paper for discussion this week is because I think it is a potentially innovative approach that might have some role in pediatrics, particular perhaps in patients who have congenital AV block and have a normal Purkinje system. In these types of cases, it might make sense to at least consider the possibility of placing a His bundle catheter or pacing lead to see if we can have optimal depolarization with the most degree of synchrony between the ventricles. However, it is very important to remember that at the present time, I am unaware of any significant studies regarding the use of this type of pacing in pediatric patients, and everything I've said about this so far is highly conjectural. There are many potential issues that one could imagine could come up with this type of approach, including the fact that there may be associated tricuspid regurgitation with this approach. And in the active pediatric patient, the chance of lead embolization is likely going to be substantially higher than with RV apical or septal pacing. Additionally, a lot of our postoperative patients can have a large bundle branch block, and it is unclear to me if pacing at the level of the HIS will result in any improvement in ventricular synchrony versus apical or septal pacing. Clearly, if this is ever going to become a technique that we use in pediatrics, studies will be needed in the future in order to assess the possible benefits of this approach. However, the idea of being able to improve cardiac synchrony in the setting of a patient in complete heart block without the need for a biventricular pacemaker is quite intriguing indeed. To complete this, our 17th episode of the podcast, Petey Heart, will end today with the singer who is commonly referred to as the king of us all, Enrico Caruso. Though he died in 1920, he had over 260 recordings, and most of his recordings were actually popular hits in his day. As you would imagine, the quality of the sound of these recordings due to the ancient recording techniques is quite poor. However, in this recording, we're going to hear him sing the lovely aria Donna non vidi mai, which comes from the opera Manon Lesco by Giacomo Puccini and means I have never seen such a woman such as this one. In this recording, we hear Caruso recorded in 1913 but the sound of his voice is actually meshed with a modern recording of the orchestral background. Combined, it makes him seem almost as if he's singing today. Thank you so much for joining me for this 17th episode of Petey Heart, Pediatric Cardiology Today, and thanks to Dr. Ed Walsh, who was kind enough to speak with us this week. If you have any concerns or questions, please feel free to contact me at petyheart at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you next week for our next episode.